Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This 36th episode is the fifth one devoted to verbally describing the proposed movie that's based on my screenplay titled Next American Revolution. In other words, it continues four that have gone before and gotten us about a third of the way through the proposed film, and that is where we start this time. So imagine you are in a theater and you have been watching Next American Revolution for some time, as per the prior episodes. You now see young Mark Feynman and young Lydia Luxemburg, 73, dressed like 40, walk along together in 2020. A child with a red wagon goes by. Young Lydia Luxemburg says, In the 60s and 70s, I could rebel, so I tuned into the reality around me. I could fight, so I turned on to my full feelings of human solidarity. I could revolt, so I joined the militant radical path of the day. Later, things got less active. I could still dissent, but if I expressed my outrage like I had earlier, my acts would be misunderstood. And since I couldn't express my deepest feelings, I didn't retain them. I tuned out parts of myself. Young Mark Feynman asks, Do you remember your feelings from the earlier days? Young Lydia Luxemburg replies, I wrote a long poem, I suppose you might call it, as the dedication for a book in the early 70s. I still remember reading it aloud for some friends before I decided to include it in the book. I think it well represented my feelings at that time. The scene shifts to a mid-1970s living room where you see the youngest Lydia Luxemburg, 29, and some of her friends chat. Revolutionary art and posters adorn the walls. Youngest Lydia Luxemburg says to her friends, I wrote a dedication for my new book, but I am worried it is too much and too long. Can I read it to you, and you let me know? A male friend says, Sure, go ahead, as long as we can be done before lunch. Youngest Lydia Luxemburg replies, Before dinner, anyway. Okay. You watch her read emotively. For workers on the line, bored, tired, and robbed of their creative days. For women, raped, pinched, door open, decultured, feminized, beaten, maimed, married, asylumed. For blacks, Latinos, Native Americans, Asians, nameless, robbed of dignity, lynched, harassed, low-paid, running, jailed. For the drunks and addicts, the worn out and the never lively. For the old and the ill who should be long-lived and wise. For the young, schooled and unschooled, avoiding boredom, doing drugs, stealing sex and losing love, trying to escape or trying to find a way in. For those on welfare or off, looking in or looking out, employed or unemployed, alone or in pairs, hiding their sex or flaunting it, angry, sad, mad. For those who feel less than they could feel. For those who are less than they could be, exploited, starved, cheated, tortured, ambushed, kidnapped, death squatted. For all the world's citizens suffering brutality and indignity, electric shocks and murdered relatives, starvation and working for pennies, the military boot and the cultural stamp, for the Empire's citizens and the Empire's enemies. A female friend says, It sounds a bit like Dylan, youngest Lydia Luxemburg replies. I hope so, yes, but it isn't done. For the strikers, saboteurs, feminists, anarchists and nationalists, occupiers and death defiers, for the new leftists, panthers, women's liberationists, farm workers, Puerto Rican nationalists. For those of AIM and their relatives who resisted and died in the past and who nonetheless live on. For the ones who dodged the draft. For those who went and disrupted. For those who went and died or lived. For the French in the streets in May and the Italians in autumn. For the Mexicans in the summer and the Czechs and Chinese. 
for everyone who has fought, fights, or will fight for a better world than they were, are, or are going to be bequeathed. The male friend says, What about the enemies we face? Youngest Lydia Luxemburg replies, I am working on adding some against, like against doctors who deal in dollars, not dignity, against owners, administrators, bosses, rapists, dealers of bad hands, against intellectuals who keep knowledge as if it were their private property, who enshrine their own ignorance under false halos, who can justify barbarism or technically dissect it as their interests require, but who never shed a tear. The scene shifts back to walking in the park, where you see the conversation continue. Mark Feynman said, That is what Lydia could feel in the 60s and through the 70s. Looking back now, I can see it was RPS sentiments taking shape. But in the 80s and 90s, and nearly 20 years into this century too, few people understood such feelings, so she buried them. For her, the birth of RPS ended a long emotional coma. She belatedly became herself again. Do you remember when the Swedish 16-year-old, Greta Thunberg, told off the U.S. Congress? I think in some ways that spurred lots of emotional awakening. The scene shifts back to the hospital office, where you see the Guevara-Feynman interview continue. Mark Feynman goes on. Hearing Luxembourg, I realized that reduced empathy helped me function daily in hospitals, but writ large, it buttressed the system. From there, I asked what social policies, behaviors, habits, and requirements cause people to be unhealthy. What changes could improve the situation? Our health movement's early growth freed our feelings. The scene shifts to Chicago, where you see various rallies culminate in a massive march, and you hear Mark Feynman's voice over the visual. We initiated various boycotts of unhealthy products and their manufacturers. Then we took up demands about pharmaceutical companies who bribed doctors to write excessive prescriptions. We took up single-payer health care. We initiated mass campaigns to serve rural and low-income areas and to treat children in schools. By 2027, over 200,000 nurses from around the country marched in Chicago, and many more held marches elsewhere. Incredible feelings of empathy, anger, hope, and desire fueled our efforts. Soon after, we campaigned in medical schools to revamp curricula and in hospitals to overthrow the idea of interning being like boot camp. Strikes and occupations played a big role. Films and writing, too. But most important was ceaseless, informed, effective organizing. The scene returns to the hospital office where you see the Guevara Feynman interview continue. Guevara asks, Can you tell us of a personally pivotal event in your RPS days? The scene shifts to a hospital cafeteria, and you see Mark Feynman at lunch and hear his voice over the visual. It was in 2023. One day at work, I went to lunch and happened to sit with a hospital psychiatrist acquaintance of mine. We got to talking, and he took great offense, feeling my views implied that he was insufficiently concerned about the well-being of nurses, as well as being classist toward working people generally. You see Mark and the psychiatrist at lunch, arguing. The psychiatrist leaps out of his seat, leans on the table to hold himself, and his nose moves inches from Mark's. He is trembling with anger and seems about to assault Mark. The psychiatrist says, I don't have to take this from you. You are purely abstract. You have no feelings. You are uncaring. You are manipulative. You are controlling. You think you are so smart, but I am a doctor of the mind. I am smarter. The scene returns to a hospital office where the interview continues. Mark Feynman says, How could a trained psychiatrist who routinely had to maintain his calm in difficult situations get so hostile over such an indirect affront? 
It made me think about how to communicate about issues of coordinator class dominance over workers without polarizing folks. Rivera says, I often felt the butt end of similar anger. What did you conclude? Feynman answers, I saw the intense emotions that drove coordinator class folks to defend their views, and I saw the potential of that inclination to even subvert reason and personal connection. I saw a person more aware than most about coordinator class and working class relations become more polarized and hostile than people whose views were much further away from mine. It made me question my approach. I suspect a lot of people in RPS had similar experiences, and our history suggests we learned from them. Guevara turns to Barbara Bethune and says, Barbara, as a doctor, were you like that psychiatrist? How did you feel about nurses? Barbara Bethune answers, I disdained, I dismissed, I gave their concerns lip service and even tried to support nurses, but ultimately I saw them as wannabe doctors who couldn't make the grade. I would say I have nurse friends, not unlike during Jim Crow racism, white folks would say they had black friends. I thought nurses should feel thankful that I administered them. So yes, I could have attacked someone like Mark for challenging me. And at the first RPS convention, I struggled to register Mark's message. I started to see how many notions he challenged and to feel how radicalizing his words were. The scene shifts to a meeting room at the convention, where we see young Mark Feynman address nurses and doctors. An RPS flag and sign welcome all to the first RPS convention. Young Mark Feynman says to the doctors in his audience, Doctors, can you see how your view hides from you the gigantic volume of talent stifled to maintain hospital hierarchies? Can you see how your maintaining your advantage denigrates us? If society didn't squash our desires, most nurses could do some doctoring. And if being a doctor didn't appeal to some of us, or wasn't in our range of talents, we could do other empowering tasks. It is disgusting for society to have relatively few people do all the empowering tasks and then use their empowerment to make the rest of us believe we deserve less. The scene shifts to a hospital office where the interview continues. Barbara Bethune says, The way I started to understand Mark was to see that with racism, white people convinced themselves they deserved better circumstances. Whites are worthy, blacks and browns are not. And I saw the similarity between that racist dynamic and my classist attitudes toward nurses. Guevara asks, What about broader economic views? Bethune answers, I had heard RPS economic ideas earlier and had deemed them ridiculous. Balance jobs for empowerment? Give income for duration, intensity, and onerousness of work? Self-manage? RPS said those things, and I thought, come on, get serious. It's stupidity on steroids. My view had been, we should remove owners, sure, but we should leave people like me in charge. But I vividly remember a moment in the first convention, after the meeting with nurses that so challenged me. There was a talk about RPS-type economics, and after it ended, I spoke to the speaker. The scene shifts to a convention hall meeting room, where you see young Barbara Bethune, 29, a doctor, walk up to the speaker, young Lydia Luxembourg. Barbara Bethune says, For years I dismissed your economic vision as silly and impossible, but I dismissed it without engaging it. But hearing you describe it, personally, here, today, I now realize I did that because of my own coordinator class interests. I was instinctively defending my doctor privileges. I apologize for that. Young Lydia Luxembourg replies, We were all twisted and fed by our upbringing, schooling, and social roles. Having been subjected to all that, it is no sin to have some elitist beliefs. What's hard and exemplary is to understand and jettison those beliefs. Young Barbara Bethune asks, 
But the new economic views were ignored for so long. Wasn't that difficult? Young Lydia Luxembourg answers, Of course it was. My partner for decades died thinking that the ideas we favored were dead, that our efforts were useless. Outside a circle of friends, I felt isolated, often, honestly, ignored, disregarded, even dismissed and discarded. But I lived on, and now you give me renewed hope. The scene shifts back to the hospital office where the interview continues. Guevara asks, Mark, your speech at the convention occurred not long after Trump's exit. Was it connected? Mark Feynman answers, Yes, I believe the anger of a good part of Trump's supporters was hostility to a perceived class enemy, though the class they most viscerally hated was not capitalists. Guevara asks, Workers didn't hate capitalists? Feynman answers, You have to realize that we workers rarely, if ever, personally encounter owners. On the other hand, we often encounter doctors, lawyers, accountants, engineers, and others with highly empowering jobs, elevated status, and great wealth. We daily encounter and obey what RPS came to call coordinators. Guevara continues, and that's who you hated. Feynman answers, I won't claim it was the most productive attitude, but why not hate them? They routinely treated us like children. They dressed and talked differently than us. They enjoyed different movies and TV. They expected us to stay out of their way and to follow their instructions. Everyone hates being rendered powerless, considered inferior, paternalized. Guevara continues, But you had to get essential aid from coordinators. You had to accept their arrogance to get their services they offered. Feynman replies, Exactly. While our hostility for managers, doctors, lawyers, and the rest was warranted, on average we workers depended on and obeyed coordinators, and humiliatingly even wanted our kids to become them. The scene shifts to a meeting in a large room at the convention, where you see young Mark Feynman address the audience. Young Mark Feynman says, Not long ago, Trump won. Why didn't activists' answers about the state of working-class lives resonate more with workers than did the ramblings of a demented billionaire who treated workers with contempt? How could decades of organizing leave so many workers so susceptible to a narcissistic reactionary? An audience member yells out, What's complicated? Racism and sexism overrode reason. The fault was the voters' own warped beliefs. Young Mark Feynman answers, That was true for some. The misogyny was intense, and so too the racism. But I think decades of prior organizing had often been rooted in coordinator class connections, assumptions, and values. I think it had often had manners, style, tone, taste, vocabulary, and policies that dismissed working people. I think workers felt this even when some electoral candidates, anti-nuke organizer, campus radical, or obscure writer said, screw the 1%. No matter what they claimed, I think leftist manners and styles left many of us feeling that they despised us. Movements talked a lot about evil owners and unjust profit, but they showed no interest in the relations between coordinators and workers. About these relations, movements didn't hear workers, didn't respect workers, and didn't elevate much less follow workers. So for many white workers suffering extreme indignities, Trump seemed to offer something new. The scene returns to the hospital lunchroom, and you see the interview continue. Miguel Guevara asks, Barbara, how did you become a doctor? Barbara Bethune answers, I went to medical school and became frustrated. After medical school, an internship pressured me to jump ridiculous hurdles and accept that I shouldn't fight the system. I could whine to friends away from work, we all did, but I couldn't challenge employers. 
Obeying these guidelines let me graduate, but it also prepared me to impose similar insanity on those who came after. Don't get me wrong. I cared about patients. I had a soul. But hospital roles undercut my intentions. To become a doctor, I had to fulfill doctor rituals and defend doctor privileges. I accepted the profession's restraints. I bludgeoned those below while I sought growing income. Guevara asks, but then you resisted. Bethune answers, yes, it started when I began to see interning as sophisticated hazing. To test my impression, which disturbed me greatly and threatened my life pass, I even visited a military boot camp and watched new soldiers undergo training. The scene shifts to military training field where you see soldiers go through their paces. A drill sergeant bosses them. The scene shifts back to the hospital lunchroom where the interview continues. Bethune says, Boot camp includes learning to shoot, to work together, to handle danger, just like interning includes useful medical learning. But boot camp mainly produces soldiers ready, willing, and sometimes even eager to kill on command. Boot camp educates recruits to ask no questions. It removes social and moral resistance. Boot camp graduates soldiers prepared to unquestioningly fulfill their roles. Guevara asks, and that reminded you of interning? Bethune answers, Interning creates doctors who defend huge salaries against any challenge, regardless of the health implications for patients and society. Doctors who abet pharmaceutical profit-seeking by promoting excessive opioid use. Doctors who denigrate nurses and exclude them from medical decisions at the expense of patient well-being. Doctors who defend incredibly inflated incomes by using excessively exclusionary medical school practices to keep down the number of doctors. I became curious, so I looked and I found similar dynamics for lawyers. Guevara interrupts. Becoming a lawyer was also like basic training? You could have looked at journalism. Bethune continued. Yes, training for all empowered professions conveys skills, knowledge, and confidence, but it also trains recipients to use their knowledge on behalf of themselves and those above at the expense of those below. Guevara asks, but surely doctors, lawyers, and journalists try to be ethical. Bethune replies, yes, but without challenging our role assignments, because we believe challenging our roles would change nothing and incur personal loss. As a result, we doctors deliver medicine to the sick if treating them won't disrupt hospital hierarchies, and we don't address the underlying causes of sickness. Role structures in hospitals, like in churches, law firms, corporate boardrooms, TV networks, and political parties, induce going along to get along. Rejecting one's role becomes virtually impossible, even unthinkable. Complying with one's role morphs into something we may initially do under duress to who we are. We don't see ourselves as hijacking our skills. We see ourselves as innately better. Someone who retains sufficient humanity to resist the game plan seems saint-like or crazy. And the same coordinator class defending logic holds for lawyers, journalists, and all empowered workers. Guevara asks, so what changed? Bethune says, when we went to the convention, we met other medical workers from around the country, and we saw firsthand that we had fewer differences than we feared. We shared our stories and discussed changes to fight for. Our prior habits and fears gave way to new insights and hopes. Guevara asks, what plans emerged? Bethune answers, seeking comprehensive single-payer health care, fighting misuse of medicines, bringing doctors to poor locales, empowering nurses, changing the income and decision-making structure of the profession, 
and, more broadly, agitating for more responsible food policies and more healthful ecological policies and work conditions. The scene shifts to a rally at a pharmaceutical company where we see young Barbara Bethune address demonstrators. Young Barbara Bethune says, To combat misusing prescriptions, we have to reveal how pharmaceutical companies not only vastly overcharge, but aggressively over-solicit with massive over-advertising. We have to show the true costs of producing drugs and the insanely high markups imposed by monopolistic pricing. We have to shine a light on prescribing unnecessary surgeries and addictive pain relief. The scene returns to the hospital lunchroom where you see the interview continue. Bethune says, The practices we unearthed were nauseating, but we were even more shocked to discover that most people found grotesque medical malfeasance unsurprising. Guevara asks, Everybody knew? Bethune replies, Not all the details, no. But yes, everybody knew, but took for granted the general situation. We then realized we mainly needed to convince people medical malfeasance wasn't inevitable. We brought class action suits wherein young claimants fought misuse of mood-altering medications, wherein elderly claimants fought companies trying to grab all their savings by entrapping them in fruitless and often horribly harmful and useless life-extending therapies, wherein those addicted to opioids fought pharmaceutical drug dealing, wherein everyone fought the overuse of antibiotics that risked pandemics. The scene shifts back to the rally at a pharmaceutical company where young Barbara Bethune militantly continues to the crowd. It is time to undertake a national boycott of pharmaceutical culprits. It is time to link these campaigns to larger ones about the roots of the problems and the overall medical system, the polity, and the economy. We have to reveal that people can not only win and preserve an immediate gain, but keep winning more. We reject doctor arrogance and support nurses and other medical workers and non-medical staff. Medicine is a rapaciously self-seeking trade. It's sick, and we must operate on it. The scene shifts back to the hospital lunchroom where you see the interview continue. Barbara Bethune says, My other focus was challenging elitist dynamics inside hospitals and healthcare generally. Workplace racism and sexism had been addressed with considerable progress, particularly by the then-recent Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements. But workplace class division had barely been addressed at all. We got people to talk at meetings. We sought greater income, more influence, and access to more skills for nurses. The trick was to fight for immediate gains in ways developing commitment to a larger vision of the future. And that's a good place, I hope you agree, to break off this episode, presenting yet another slice of the hoped-to-be-made movie, Next American Revolution. Would you like to see it, improved by directors and actors, on a big screen? Can you imagine that? If so, and if you like the prospect, why not write me for a PDF of the screenplay that you can pass on, with info about the podcast and with your kind words? That is the path toward moviedom for Next American Revolution so maybe you will help make it happen. I hope you will consider that possibility, and I hope you will also consider helping to support Revolution Z at our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash revolutionz. Next time, we will have another vision episode of Revolution Z. We will address issues of race and community for a better society. So, for now, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.